the most important thing is you have to be in the business because you love to develop games. It has to be something that is passionate for you, right? Because you have such a small chance of success for each title, it will kind of beat you down and difficult to get motivated. So what we like to do is, is pick a genre. For Enway, it was mostly fighting games. And then we wanted to hire people who are really passionate about that genre, people who love to play fighting games, who are maybe pro fighting game players, people who know everything inside out about doing combos and, and combat, and hire those people. Then you can go through the ups and downs because you're in it for the journey. Hi, I am Sophie Vu, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In the show, I sit down with influential thought leaders in the gaming industry to deconstruct how they create the best teams and company cultures in order to create the best games. Speaking to hundreds of game executives in the show, I have identified recurring patterns and mistakes that we all make in our leadership journey. Do you have to go through the same hold-ons and make the same mistakes to learn too? You are not alone in this journey, and hopefully you can learn from a diverse range of seasoned leaders who already walked the talk. Every episode brings actionable insights and case studies that will help you improve your management skills, self-awareness, and empathic communication. Becoming a better leader starts with becoming a better human. Are you ready to unlock your full potential in life and business? Let's begin. So welcome everyone for a new episode of Rise and Play. And to start this series on change management and company evolution and pivots, I have the pleasure to have today with me Taehyun Kim. Taehyun Kim is a co-founder and CEO of Enway, a San Francisco-based developer and publisher of competitive multiplayer games renowned for specializing in fast action cross-play games across mobile, PC, and console platform. Among the notable titles of Enway, TK has been the visionary behind Many of the successful games, such as Chronoblade, Power Rangers Legacy Wars, another Power Rangers in the series Battle for the Grid, and WWE Undefeated Titles. And Enway was acquired by Animal Care Brands in 2020 and currently operates as an independent subsidiary. Enway is at the forefront of the Web3 gaming revolution with the innovative Web3 game platform Enway Play, that we will talk about as well today, and their new Web3 fighting game, Rec League. And previously, TK co-founded as well Nurian Software, creators of the virtual world platform Nurian, and the successful game MSTAR, which garnered over 25 million in venture funding and was later acquired by Netmarble. So welcome, TK, to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. Thanks for joining. And also for our listeners, TK is calling from San Francisco. So early morning and I'm also here in the evening. So, you know, beauty of like also recording remotely and calling from the other sides of the world. So let's start with a start here. I'd like to hear about your journey before you started NY because you founded NY 11 years ago and you have had experience as well founding other companies. How did you found NY? And also, how did you even get to games? If you could share a bit more your whole entrepreneur journey in the space. Uh, sure, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, so I started my career at Samsung Electronics headquarter. 
I was a big PDA nerd when I was back in college, and Samsung was the first a major mobile manufacturer to adopt the uh, the Palm OS. Um, this is a long time ago, in 2002. Um, and so I, I joined their new business development team, and my division was just starting the smartphone division. And then out of that, we were also trying to start a mobile gaming business. I was in charge of a, a new type of a gaming phone, and I was going around the world trying to get content for that. And then I fell in love with the development industry and, and gaming. I met with a, a studio called Real Time Worlds, founded by Dave Jones. He's a famous game designer who, who created Grand Theft Auto and, and Memmings, Crackdown, among other games. I tried to get some games off of him, and he convinced me to leave Samsung and join the startup. So I ended up going to Real Time Worlds, helped the company raise a lot of money from Silicon Valley, started their studio in Asia. And then I decided to start my own studio, and that's the Nurian software that you just mentioned previously. So yeah, that was a studio that I started from Seoul, Korea, because Seoul was kind of a burgeoning market for online games. They had a huge market in Korea as well as China. And this was like back in 2007 when things were really taking off for MMORPGs and online games in general. Yeah, so I, went, I came back to Silicon Valley, raised some money here. I think I raised $25 million total for, for Nurian Software. We, we created this new virtual world platform called Nurian, created this first dance music-based MMO. That was a very mm-hmm. new concept back at the time. But it turns out that you know if you create a game that is around 50% male and 50% female, then it's a good business because people tend to care about what they're wearing. So we ended up selling a lot of skins and clothing, accessories, and and things like that through the, the virtual store. Netmarble ended up acquiring that. The game M-Star is, I think, still their only revenue-generating game on, on PC. M-Star was a game that's more for mass market, but required very high-end, high-spec PC. Mm-hmm. So I got into the whole rabbit hole of, like, how do you make these, like, 3D or high-fidelity games that are more accessible? That's when I discovered the Unity engine that was kind of taking off at that time, and I wanted to figure out different ways to make the games available on different platforms and make them easy to kind of access and not have to have a you know like a crazy setup just to, to for you to get to play. So I think that's when I got really interested in developing like the type of games that I, I like to play, which is you know competitive multiplayer games for emerging platforms at that time. Kind of fast forward to 2011 when I started Enway. That's when Gaming was also coming off of like this PC and console, and, and I don't know if you guys remember, but you know you, there were games like Farmville and mm-hmm. Cityville, and companies like Zynga and Playroom were really kind of broadening the the gamer base from nerdy guys to like even moms playing the game, right? So mm-hmm. I like that kind of trajectory. So anyway, it was really started with the vision of creating real time multiplayer games that run on multiple platforms. And so, yeah, we created a first game called Chrono Blade that was the first action RPG game. It was real-time PvP that ran on mobile and a smart TV and browser. And that was kind of the, the start of the journey for Enway. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks a lot for your background. And I have so many follow-up questions because you have done also the journey of building a company, selling, and then again, building another company. So maybe more on the background of uh, Neuron Software, because you mentioned as well you created at the time the studio in South Korea, and then, of course, fundraising in Silicon Valley. Did I understand correctly that Enway was founded later in the Silicon Valley, right? So, Oh, correct, yeah. Enway was started in San Francisco. All right. Nearing Software was founded back in Seoul, Korea. They're okay. two different locations. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and how long were you leading Nearing Software? 
Yeah, so I was there about five years or something like that. It was back in the time when game development took a long time, especially in online mm. game development. So I think MSTAR, it was around like five years of development. So yeah, and, and, and also require a lot of capital to develop, yeah. develop games back then. For a real-time worlds, we created a game called APB, which I think was the total development time was close to like seven years or something like that. So it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Wow. But now with all these services, you're able to develop games a little bit faster. Yeah, it's a different time. I mean, like 25 million probably meant much more at the time than now what it, how it is, you know, which is, I wouldn't say it's common. It's a, it's, it's a little harder these days. But it was not like uh, a year or two years ago, shocking to see uh, even like seed stage companies uh, receiving 5, 10, 20 million sometimes. It must have meant a larger amount at the time in 2007, as you said. After five years, uh, having an exit of a company, it's pretty impressive. So I guess that also led to the appetite you later found. And Wyatt, I'm interested in how you started again. Did you start the company as the main founder and CEO, or did you have at the time other partners? You mentioned about the vision you had as well when creating the company. The most difficult part when you create the company is also building the team quickly, because without a team, you don't have any games. So how long did that take to just kick off the company at the beginning and where after you actually exited to a previous company where you had hired people? How did that transition happen? Yeah, so I didn't start the company by myself. When I started NYA back in 2011, I got together back with my colleagues at Real Time Worlds. So again, with Dave Jones and also Tony Harmon, they were both co-founders of, of Real Time Worlds. So three of us got together. We were all kind of very intrigued by all these emerging platforms that were helping to broaden the gamer base. And yeah, we wanted to kind of bring real-time multiplayer games to those platforms because those are the type of games that we developed in the past and that we're passionate about playing. And we decided to start it. And it's always difficult to, you know, put together a team at the beginning, also because game development is very difficult to do. And it takes a very well-oiled team to create mm-hmm. games. And so we had some, you know, bumps at the beginning, but, you know, we made sure that we clearly articulate kind of our vision and to make sure that we created a studio with good culture. We were able to kind of bring in a lot of learning from our past. And also because we had some, my partners were big names in the industry. Mm-hmm. So that also helped bring in some people over. So yeah, we had to kind of make sure that people who were joining were passionate about building games for new platforms because we weren't just making another console game, right? Doing something new, doing something innovative. But yeah, it's always a challenge to hire the even if you like hire the best people, if you don't have a good teamwork, it's very difficult to develop a good game. Mm-hmm. You mentioned like spending time at the beginning articulating the vision, which also you have previously mentioned about retail multiplayer games and platform and culture as well that you had to have in place to even be able to know who you have to hire. What was the vision of the culture you wanted for the company? Is it still the same today? It evolved a little bit over time, but mm-hmm. it, it hasn't changed too much, right? So we looked at some of the games we launched and we realized that gaming is sort of a hit-driven business. So we realized that maybe out of 10 to 15 games, maybe one will hit. Right? <laughs> so a couple of things, right? So for this industry, you have to be one, like not be afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. And, and two, you have to be bold about trying new things and bringing innovation and creating new experiences. If you're scared about failing, then you end up benchmarking the successful games too much and the games become similar and the experience becomes not very fresh and 
if you have a huge marketing budget and if you have a huge IP like Call of Duty or another Grand Theft Auto game, it's like you're guaranteed that you'll have an audience. But if you're trying to break out with a new IP, then the best marketing that you can have is a new type of game experience, a new design or something that's very fresh. You have people want to go out and, and talk to their friends about it. Like, have you tried this game? You know, it's, it's so mm-hmm. new. It has this, you know, XYZ. You should try playing with me. And that's the best way to do marketing, right? So you got to try a lot of new things there. And then the most important thing is, is you have to be in the business because you love to develop games. It has to be something that is passionate for you, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have such a small chance of success for each title, it will kind of beat you down and it's difficult to get motivated. So what we like to do is, is pick a genre. For Enway, it was mostly fighting games. Mm-hmm. And then we wanted to hire people who are really passionate about that genre. People who love to play fighting games, who are maybe pro fighting game players, <laughs> people who know everything inside out about doing combos and, and combat, and hire those people. Then you can go through the ups and downs because mm-hmm. you're in it for the journey, right? We also realized that, you know, because there's so many things you can do, there's no right answers. Mm-hmm. It's not like the movie industry, like, oh, I'm Steven Spielberg. Like, every movie I'm going to make is going to be a hit. Like, <laughs> it's very difficult to do, you mm-hmm. know? My partners were good friends with the founders at Epic Games. And even someone like Tim Sweeney, who's been in the industry for so long, you know, he, he couldn't have predicted that Fortnite wasn't going to be that, mm-hmm. that big, right? Mm-hmm. So it is very difficult to predict things like that. So yeah, we like to hire people who doesn't have a big ego. Like, we like to have people even who are not game designers, maybe they're engineers or they're in mm-hmm. QA, doesn't matter. We want all of them to contribute to game design, put their ideas forward. And, you know, doesn't matter where it comes from. We like to be idea driven and allow the best ideas to kind of come into the game as, as a feature. Egoless is one of our Core values, empathy is another one to kind of make sure that we have a good teamwork in place, take multiple shots, which means you're mm-hmm. trying a lot of different things, transparency, so that everybody has the right information to be able to, you know, make the best decisions and, and contribute to, to the game design and always have the mentality of the underdog. So we have something called the be a little Mac, which means like we, you want to punch <laughs> above our weight. <laughs> um, yeah. So our team has been always kind of somewhat smaller, so somewhere between 50 to 100 people. 50 to 200 people? 50 to, I guess, 120, somewhere Uh around there. Yeah, it's always been kind of in that area. And I think that's the best, from my experience, the best size to develop Mm -hmm. innovative games. Um, when the team size gets too big, it's it's not as fun. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been at companies where it's 300, 500, 6,000, 10,000, so, and it's a different organization. It's still big when you pass 100, but that's also the size you need probably to produce big games. Um, and about those value that you mentioned, how do you evaluate that? It's quite difficult in, in a interview process, and I'm sure now people have practiced quite well the qualities that are looked for in companies and like, yeah, being humble, being transparent has been also values promoted in other companies. But I have seen from my experience people who actually... <laughs> you know, are humble or egoless. It's more in practice as you see and after you're hiring. So how have you identified like the people who are right for you and your company over time, the learnings you get there? The best way is to hire people that team members have worked with in the past so they know mm-hmm. who they are and not, you know, how yes. they've acted in the past. So you tap into the network of your current employees. 
but that mm-hmm. only gets you so far. <laughs> yeah, so later indeed, on, uh, you start tapping into other networks. So you have to go through uh, the interview process and really ask a lot of questions about you know various situations, how they've you know reacted to difficulties. How did you you know solve not just technical issues but people issues? How they've kind of made decisions at difficult situations or situations that require tough decisions, and see what was the thought process behind those decisions. So it might be a little bit slow, but we try to have a lot of people go through and do their interview, and then we kind of get together as a group and we discuss about how this candidate is capable of doing the job. That of course we're going to evaluate that, but half of the session is usually de- devoted on culture fit. Mm-hmm. We have a formula on how to evaluate that, and, and we try to make sure that even if someone is really capable or, or brilliant and if it's a bad culture fit we try not to to hire that person mm-hmm. the cost is much higher in the long term it's not on the role only but for the team members so yeah taking time as what you hire although it's tempting to hire fast because you need people to make your game right yeah and when you started anyway did you start with your initial capital from the previous exit or did you uh, raise as well because you know the reality as well, it's a lot of upfront investment to start your game. And like you said, it's trying several shots until you have a product market fit. So what was the journey when you started with just the three of you as co-founders before you had the first success with Chronoblade? Three of us put in the money at the beginning. We mm-hmm. put in the equal amount of money from our own accounts. And then I think we were able to quickly raise some seed funding. Okay. So maybe like six months later or something like that, we were able to raise some seed funding off of having a prototype. And then things started to really blow up in the mobile gaming space. And that's when we were able to kind of go out and, and raise some big bucks. Mm-hmm. And you released Chronoblade on Facebook at first, right? Because 2011, I was also working on the yeah, first Facebook games. I mean, it was transitioning to mobile already, but there were still some Facebook launch. So how did you launch the platform? Was it your first test or did you have other experience before that film, but not men- mentioned? So did you have product market fit from the first shot? Uh, no, I don't think we had product market fit from the first shot. Yeah, we had Chrono Blade launch on the Facebook canvas and there wasn't really a part of market fit there because the majority of the players who wanted to play there were more casual players and Corona Blade oh, was a very hardcore, yeah. hardcore game. We did get a lot of good response from people, but we just didn't have, we didn't get that growth that you would get from, mm-hmm. from the typical social game. But that wasn't really our goal anyways. Like we weren't trying to make the biggest game on, on Facebook. We wanted to make sure that the game can run in browser, that you can have mm-hmm. some social hooks in, in play for a game like an action RPG in the uh, game and action RPG genre. And then when we had the game go on on mobile, that's when I think things started to take off. And that was when some of the more hardcore or core or mid-core gamers were coming over to mobile. Mm -hmm. So we had a really good run in Asia, especially in in Korea and and China. And then we expanded over to the US. Western markets were lagging a little bit behind Asia in terms of the adoption of the mobile platform for... Mm -hmm. For the hardcore gamers because as you know the western market is much more console driven mm-hmm. right the asian markets were much more pc online driven and the transition from pc to mobile was happening like super fast console was their its own island right so it was the, the adoption happened in, in asia first mm-hmm. more common when we don't find uh 
product market fit. It's more a, a product pivot. But here is like trying different markets or platforms to see mm. where you could have traction, right? So before throwing the, the game. And when you saw traction uh, picking up, what happened next? Because also delivering the experience, an online game, probably as well running live ops. How many were you at the time and how fast did you scale, I guess, to keep growing the game and making other games? Oh, yeah. For that period, so we had the game running on browser. We had a demo on smart TV. And then we also had a demo on mobile. And I remember it was a time when, when all the, the big Asian publishers were looking for exactly that type of game, like action RPG and RPG games on mm -hmm. mobile for our core players. They saw the market explode and it takes time to build those games. So we were mm -hmm. like right there at the right time with the right type of game running on, mm -hmm. on mobile. So we had all the big publishers in Asia just like throwing money at us like crazy. All wow. the executives would, would come to our <laughs> office, would write like, here's the MG we'll give you on a napkin, like wow. millions of dollars. Like, <laughs> 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 writing terms on a napkin and then giving it to me. Would you take this? You know, and then it was just like a fun, fun time. <laughs> Literally every major Asian game publisher gave us an offer. Mm. So we were, we had them from Tencent, NetEase, you know, Netmarble and Nexon, like all the big guys. <laughs> we chose Netmarble because they were kind of really taking off in the mobile space. Yeah. Like they weren't the biggest one at that time, but they were really doing well on, on mobile space. So we chose Netmarble for Korea. And then we had a really tough time trying to decide between Tencent and NetEase in China. But we decided to go with NetEase because they had that experience of working with a company like Blizzard with World of Warcraft. They weren't as advanced as Tencent in mobile games, but we had better culture fit, I feel like, at that time mm -hmm. for the type of game that we wanted to develop. So we ended up going with NetEase. The minimum guarantees and the license fee that they paid us, that was kind of almost like a second you know, round of funding for us. And that's mm -hmm. when we had a kind of a growth spurt for our studio. Very nice. Huh? So you can grow in the teams. What was the timeline later when you started to develop games with an IP? Like Power Rangers is quite a strong IP. I don't know so much these days because I, I've known it when I was a kid. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's still very, I'm sure, very popular in Asia. And I think here there's a great fit of, for sure, IP and the genre of the game, you know, like the fighting. So how did that happen? Oh yeah, so that was unexpected. I am a Power Rangers fan, but I was heads down on trying to bring Kona Blade over to the, to the Western market. Mm -hmm. And then Peter Levin, who at the time was president at Lionsgate, who was in charge of gaming there, he saw Kona Blade in China. I think it was in China doing some deals to get the new Power Rangers movie distributed there. He saw Kona Blade, and it was the first game that had like live PvP. And so they gave us a call, and through our mutual friend, we were connected. And uh, he was like, hey, you know, love to use your engine and, and try to create a fighting game with the Power Rangers IP. And I told him, hey, like, we're kind of too busy. We don't have any kind of room to take on a new project if we turn them down. And then he visited us and then pitched the game. I was like, oh, there's a new movie coming out in 2017. It's going to be a brand new look and, and it's going to be uh, amazing. We said no again. And he was like, <laughs> why can't you do it? No, we just don't have the resources right now to work on a new project. And and it was like, well, what if I help bring in, in the resource for you? So then I got interested. <laughs> <laughs> so he brought in his friend, Phil Sanderson from IDG Ventures to a three-way deal. Like, let's get the Power Rangers IP signed and get you funding. 
with uh, with Ideas Ventures. Let's make sure that you guys have the resources to take on this project. Mm. So I was like, mm, in that case, I'm very interested. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah, we ended up doing that deal, and as part of that deal, we had um, Peter from Lionsgate join us on the board. We had Phil Sanderson also join us on the board. We put Chrono Play on hold, and we got into to developing Power Rangers. I didn't know it was going to be that much of a hit, but it was a massive success uh, for us. It was yeah. a good good fit. It was a good yeah. fit. Yeah, yeah. It's I would say in the case like when you see the IPs that are successful, and I think the Marvel as well for certain genre of games work really well as well with the world. You know, I could imagine Power Rangers. And how popular was it globally? Was it like global global? Was it more east or west? Again, like I, I really don't know the reach of Power Rangers as an IP these days. Power Rangers IP is very strong in in, in the US, so mm-hmm. I think it was like forty percent in the US. So wow. it, was, it was very big in the US compared to some of the previous games that we've done in the past, right? Because mm-hmm. you see majority of the people coming in from other places, so like India is usually big, Brazil, you know, Philippines. But for this game, the U.S. was the main, main market, I think, because uh, a lot of people that were coming into the game were people who had nostalgia from their childhood days, mm-hmm. the Power Rangers IP, so. yeah, which was huge here. Power Rangers has like a different IP in Asia. It's called Super Sentai, right? So, ah. so I think that was a key difference. And also because of the movie, the, we were getting kind of in a resurgence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people had forgotten about it for a while, but because of a new movie coming out, people were talking about it again. That was super helpful as well. You know, because it was a PvP only game, so that was a big bet that we took. A lot of our advisors and friends were telling us that there's no way a mobile game will be successful if it's PvP only. There was no other games to compare it to. This is before like Clash Royale or, or mm-hmm. all these other PvP games. You don't really have a single player campaign and you're always playing with other people. This seemed like it wasn't something that can scale. So we had kind of low expectations at the beginning, but I think a couple of things. One is there hasn't been a good Power Rangers game for a very long time, mm. or maybe ever. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was like, you know, the community was a lot stronger than I expected. And they embraced the game like crazy because they had Power Rangers from all seasons and the movie. It wasn't just like mm-hmm. a movie movie mm-hmm. game. It had content from all the, all the previous seasons. And then because it was a PvP only game, we had a lot of organic growth because people were like, hey, you want to play with me? You want to go mm. you know, head to head with me? And everybody had the phone. And we had this feature where like, two people can just like, directly match and play. Like, we didn't do that much marketing. We we're just getting a ton of organic installs. Wow. And what was surprising about this game is that even today, after six years, we're getting a ton of installs that's coming in organically every single month. So we're expecting hey, maybe like 5 million downloads for this year. We got that off the launch. Like launch yeah, weekend, yeah. we had 6 million down- downloads. Our DAU shot up to like 2 million. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, I have in the numbers over 80 million downloads to date. Is that correct? Yeah, I checked it again uh, a couple of weeks ago and it was like over 90 million now. Wow. That's the numbers that people would uh, die for these days <laughs> in the mobile space, you know, <laughs> uh, downloads. But again, like I think a reminder here of uh, fit, IPs, products, also market timing. You can just increase your bets and odds by shooting, shooting, shooting. But also there's other factors that are so complex to grasp. And then you have to take it, you know, when it grows. So I understand that later you, so you continued to develop 
Power Ranger games and also other IPs, franchise like WWE as well. So are you specialized more working also with license to elevate your games or it's, it was more opportunistic? After the success of Power Rangers Legacy Wars on mobile, we had this every IP holder like <laughs> like, because we create, I think it's also because we created a new genre, right? Because mm. IP holders, they give exclusivity to mm-hmm. a developer for a certain genre, right? So you take okay. RPG, you guys take social or whatever. And then now we had this new genre for like PVP fighting. And so that's, a, that's why they all came to us and said, Hey, like we can give you the rights for PVP fighting. Let's work on a game together. The quality of the game was super high back at that time. And it was also good for the Power Rangers IP. I think it kind of elevated. Mm-hmm. Our game almost became like a place for all the Power Rangers fans to come and hang out and talk about different type of characters because we had so many different characters in the game. And they all <laughs> looked, our characters like in 3D looked better than what it did, like how they looked on the, the TV show. Because TV shows are all old. So we thought that maybe doing a WWE game was going to be something that's interesting. We had a lot of WWE fans at the studio, and then we thought it could be a cool kind of blending of fighting mechanics with wrestling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We haven't seen like real time wrestling game before, so we thought that was cool. But before that, we also did Power Rangers Battle for the Grid, and the reason we got into that one is because our player base, they were begging us. They were like, you guys made the best Power Rangers game on mobile. You can <laughs> also make one for console, please. Oh. So we went, we went back to the licensor. And they're like, no, we can't do that because Bandai Namco has the exclusive. Oh. <laughs> so we couldn't do it. And then I think I got a message from, I think it was Peter again. And he was like, oh, I think that the exclusivity is coming to an end. So we may be able to do something. <laughs> so I messaged everybody like, you know, Saban, Lionsgate, everybody's like, we got to do a console game. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I showed them all the feedbacks from our community. Where That's awesome. Us a console game. And they're like, okay, let's try this. And so we made a completely different game, like a Marvel versus Capcom type of three versus three, mm-hmm. very hardcore controller driven. So we went the complete, a complete other way because with the, the mobile version, Power Rangers Legacy Wars, it was a, a very simplified fighting mechanic. You had the energy system so that you can button match every kind of move, cause some sort of energy. And so it was a strategy skill and like it was something that you know everybody can play. And then we created this console game, which is much more like a typical fighting game. It's very controller and skill driven. And because three versus three, Marvel versus Capcom style, it's even more skill driven, even more fast. But we knew that there was a, a niche there, community of people in the fighting game community that loved that type of genre. So I think that was also the reason why Battle for the Grid was a hit. But the differentiator for that one was that it was the first fighting game that was cross-play on all platforms. So it was on like Nintendo Switch, on all the Xbox platforms, PlayStation, Steam. <laughs> wow. So, you know, it could be on a browser streaming, mm. your friend could be on Nintendo Switch, I could be on PC, someone could be on Xbox, someone could be on PlayStation. You can all play it together and match make. And we had some of the best netcode and best rollback system. People were super impressed on how smooth it was on the backend side, even though game was like very, very fast in very high in action. That's when the fighting game community, the hardcore guys were like, oh my gosh, these, these N-Way guys, can you, they really know how to make good fighting games. Mm. Not just on mobile, but just at the, you know, yeah, on consoles and, and PC as well. 
I think like uh, reflecting as well on how you started the company, because I, I see as well something in the space for especially new companies being formed, like really having the focus on the genre and taking the bet you own it and becoming the best. That seems that what you have achieved by really owning like the space of fighting and also combination with IP that fits really well and proving that it's uh, independent from the platform. Because uh, again, you gave the example that you have adapted to mobile and the session and the audience and console, different audience, much more hardcore gamers, and also taking as a benchmark the other fighting games, but still delivering. I really like is as well, like re-delivering on the desires, the dreams of the community, fans of the IP. Because if they never could play the experience properly on a game, on an interactive experience, you have delivered it, right? So I think it's like finding really your direction and owning it and excelling in it. I think it's also an example of how a company can position itself to thrive, survive over a decade, which is more difficult these days I have seen, especially for new mobile studios. Yeah, when you say listening to the community, that brings me a funny story. So when we launched our Power Rangers game, we had a booth at San Diego Comic-Con. Um, and then we ran into the Capcom guys and the, the producer for Street Fighter. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that he's a fan of Power Rangers. <laughs> so he gave me an idea. He's like, hey, what if we make Ryu and Chun-Li and these Street Fighter characters into Power Rangers? Let's give them a Power <laughs> Rangers suit. And I thought that was like the coolest idea ever, right? To give them a more for real, like <laughs> morphs into a Power Rangers with Power Rangers suit. So like it was no brainer. We're like, let's do it. I went back to, I think now it was, Power Rangers was not owned by Hasbro. I went back and said, hey, we, we need to do this. It's going to be amazing. And so we worked with Capcom guys to create a, a Power Ranger version of, of Ryu and Chun-Li. Wow, you did it. And, yeah, we did it. <laughs> We're like, who owns the IP for this? <laughs> like Power have Power Rangers, have Street Fighter. Who owns this? Anyway, so we thought it was going to be, so we kept it secret. We thought it was going to be a wonderful surprise and a wonderful gift to, to the Power Rangers community. Mm -hmm. We launched it with the biggest marketing campaign ever. And our player base, they absolutely hated it. <laughs> they were so angry. They were so angry. Ouch. They were like, <laughs> you painted our IP. How dare you bring Street Fighter characters into our <laughs> world? <laughs> you know, there's no rationale as to why these Street Fighter characters are in our sacred Power Rangers, you know, universe. Oh, wow. They were so mad, right? <laughs> and that was very unexpected. Mm. It turns out that the lore is extremely important for the fans. So there had to be a mm. reason. So we had to do something. So I went back to Lions Game. We're like, we have to just, we have to create a story. We have to create a short movie out of this. Mm. And so we actually created a short movie. It's on YouTube. It got a ton of uh, views. It was a short story on how Street Fighter characters become Power Rangers. So after mm -hmm. we created that story and that, that, that short movie, we released it. Then the audience was like, oh, now I understand. Like in that case, you know, now I understand oh. how they came in and now like, they're part of the lore. And so after that, they became more acceptance of it and, and kind of the anger calmed down. And the sales of these characters start to pick up. I'm going to find that video after and put it in the show notes because I'm very curious. And I think it's a great example as well, uh, owning, like when, you know, it's not being received as expected, but also correcting it, right? Like you, you followed up and you created that story 
giving it a try to see how it responds. And so uh, accepting indeed like bending a little bit the IP of Power Rangers with Street Fighters. But it's a great story. After the story was made, people loved it. We ended up putting those characters in the, in the console game. And then I think Hasbro and Capcom made figures out of these characters. Oh, that's awesome. And you can buy them. Wow. So coming to reality, so digital, like from game to toys, so much connected is awesome. Yep. So as you went as well with like franchise, the IP holders, with the fighting games, you also are venturing to the web free space. And I wanted to hear more about it. When did it start? What are your plans about it? And I assume based on everything you shared so far that it's skipping the trajectory of the genre of games you're making. But yeah, what's your take on the, then entering the web free space uh, and platform? Yeah, I think it was back in early 2018, a new company kind of came in to an office space right above us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a company called Tron. <laughs> Dustin Sun and his team came came in and they took the whole space and they're having a blast <laughs> and they're having free dinners and things like that. And then we always saw them in the elevators and they invited us over and they were like telling us about the whole new world of NFTs and blockchain games and things like that. Okay, like, hey, we should do a blockchain game together. That's when we mm-hmm. started thinking about like, hey, maybe there could be a new business model here. You know, it is tougher to monetize skill-based games. It's because mm-hmm. you can't sell things like power-ups as much. And I thought the whole concept of like, hey, if we can create these assets that players can own, whether it's characters or weapons or you know mm-hmm. armor or whatever, and if players can truly own these and they can trade them, and the transaction fee can maybe a new new type of business model. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to try that out. So we created a, a marketplace called NMA Play. And so that's like how we got into the Web3 space. I think a year after that, we, we met with the IOC at one of the, the game conferences. And at that time, they were just coming off of the a decade-long excessive relationship with Nintendo and, and Sega for the Mario at the mm-hmm. Olympics franchise. And I think they were looking for a new video game partner that catered to the younger audience. Because I think the younger audience weren't as interested in watching Olympics on the TV, and they wanted to kind of mm-hmm. capture them. I think they did a study on, on where they spend their screen time and it was shown that they were spending most of their entire time on Roblox, Minecraft, and Fortnite. Mm-hmm. They weren't console games. These were all, they were hanging out in those virtual worlds. And it turns out that the cross-platform nature of these games was the key differentiator. Because if you want to hang out with your friends in a game, mm-hmm. not all your friends are going to all have the exact same device, right? If the game is mm-hmm. on PlayStation 4 only, not all your friends are going to have PlayStation 4 or 5, yeah. right? But if it's cross-platform, you can play anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could be on PlayStation. My friend will be on his phone. Someone else will be on a tablet. Someone else needs a browser, whatever, right? So they can all hang out together. So they were looking for a game like that. And we were one of the few studios that were able to kind of bring real-time interaction, cross-play experiences. And we also threw in a new idea of, hey, you know, you have this like hundred-year-old tradition of trading Olympic pins. Maybe we can make these into NFTs. And maybe if you collect some of these NFTs, they also give you something in the game, right? So mm-hmm. they, they did an RFP for all the game studios. And on our version, we had all three of those things in, in the proposal. To our surprise, we won the proposal and we ended up winning that deal. And it had that NFT component in it, right? So oh, that's how we mm-hmm. kind of got into the Web3 world. And also around the same time, we also joined forces with Animoca Brands, and they're the biggest name in the, in the Web3 world. So and we put our heads together on, on how to make Web3 games. Mm-hmm. 
that's exciting new phase uh, and for sure it makes sense as well for the games you have and like for the trading aspect and potential expanding on what you've already built and have you launched it or is it in development that you will get to test it at some point soon so for the the olympic project we we did launch the olympic pins right around when the the tokyo the olympics was launching we got a big boost from that we also got a big boost from the beijing olympics that's when we Mm-hmm. Also launched the game. The, the Tokyo Olympics, we only launched the marketplace and, and the pins, the NFT pins. And then on with the Beijing Olympics, we also launched a, a game called Olympic Games Jam. It was a game with a series of mini games where you can compete with each other. And then if you have the pins, then you're able to generate tickets. And if you have tickets, then you can go into these game events. And if you do well in the game events, then you can win Victory Gems, which was a coin that we launched. So, yeah, we did a lot of experiments. As we have covered a bit like the whole history of the company, and it was also very nice for me to discover as well more about the story behind the titles. I wanted to ask more about you. As you started the company, of course, as a co-founder, and I'm pretty sure your role has evolved over the past 10 years. What are you focusing on today and what makes you excited about what's coming next for the company or future titles or development, of course, that you can share? I'm super excited right now about the future of esports in the Web3 world. The technology of ownership that is brought to us by, by blockchain technology combined with digital competitions and then in the world of esports, I think can bring a lot of new experiences. And I think we can bring over a lot of the kind of things that we see in the physical world with in the world of sports over into the virtual space of esports because you can have ownership. There could be a lot of stakeholders in the esports world. We can have people who own certain things that partner up with skilled players and compete together as a team. We have a game called Rec League where it's basically a mech fighting game and you can create and customize your own mech and you own the mechs that you create or that you, you purchase. And depending on the parts that you use to create the mechs, it will play differently right, mm-hmm. in, in the game. So imagine having people who have the best mechs partnering up with the, the most skilled players, forming a team and competing on the tours and the tournaments for on-chain prizes. And on-chain prizes are you know, NFTs and coins, and they're frictionless, right? Before, when we did cash pricing or physical goods pricing, mm-hmm. you know, it was very difficult if you're outside the U.S. But with on-chain pricing, it's frictionless globally. And I think you can have other stakeholders too. Like we can have people who own arenas who own tournaments and maybe they can set entrance fees and they can generate revenues maybe they can have shops that sell boosting consumables to the participants of these tournaments it's just a whole new world when you combine web3 with, with esports and it's exciting to see what, what that brings to mm-hmm. the players and last question what are the challenges like at least the things that keeps you awake at night these days Similar challenges, you know, you always have in the, in the game industry, right? So as I said earlier, gaming is a head-driven business, right? Mm-hmm. You have to love what you're doing. Also, you know, right now we're kind of in the bear market, especially for Web3. Although, you know, it might be the best time to build when you're in the bear market since you less distracted, all that, you, you kind of get the attention because the, only the projects that, that are able to kind of get funding is getting the attention. But it is tough to kind of raise funding during this time. It is, it is tougher to kind of gain traction. So yeah, the macro is something that we're, you're always kind of worried about. Maybe not as a developer, but if you're running the company, right? So things like that. But because I think we are in the business 
because we love to do what we do. I think that shields us somewhat from all this stuff. Indeed. Uh, I think that's the beauty of that industry. It's, well, there's a lot of business, but it's also very creative, very playful. Sometimes like getting back to our child, you know, especially with IPs that we played with when we were kids. And that's, you know, the energy we have to, uh, I would say, overcome the hurdles of a market. It's like a cycle up and down, up and down. I've seen it as well over a decade. Well, thanks a lot, TK, today for uh, sharing, you know, the history of a company and also quite funny anecdotes. And I'll make sure to find that video or ask you later because I do want to watch it uh, after what you shared. So thanks a lot for your time today and take care. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the Rise and Play podcast. I am growing a community of conscious leaders across the industry and beyond. If you want to join this movement, please share the podcast with other conscious leaders because we have so much more we can learn from each other. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow and rate the show on Spotify or your other favorite podcast platform. It will help other growing leaders to discover the show and benefit from the valuable insights. If you would like to grow rapidly your leadership skills, you can find more insights on riseandplay.io where you will also find my free masterclass on conscious leadership and other resources that I offer. Have a great week and remember to take care of yourself. Until the next time.